we've been going through a sermon series called uh, Pillars of the Local Church. And so we're going to be in Romans 6 today and a lot of other places, but Romans 6 is the main text that we're going to read to start us off. And so go ahead and turn to Romans 6. Um, And um, I just wanted to remind you what we've been doing so far in this series is we've been, uh, it's called Pillars of the Local Church. Uh, So what does that mean? Uh, Basically, it means that we're going through um, some vital uh, elements, uh, vital uh, things about the church uh, that are pillars, foundational, uh, that hold the structure together of who we are as a church. Um, and so that means who we are as Redeemer as a church, but also just as the church with a capital C, right? The, the universal church. And so um, some of them apply uh, more broadly and some of them apply more specifically um, depending on if it's a doctrine that we hold to that might differ within different denominations and that sort of thing. And so we've gone through things like commitments to the gospel, uh, the one, through, one true God, commitment to the scriptures, and commitment to serving one another. Um, and so today we're going to um, discuss uh, some, a commitment that we have as a church uh, that is a little bit more specific. Um, and uh, and not, not in that it's not practiced um, universally, but what we believe about it might differ from different denominations, whereas generally uh, the one true God and serving one another and things like that are generally agreed upon by the universal church. And so um, today we're going to be talking about a commitment to baptism. Um, and so uh, if you have made it to Romans 6 uh, on your phone or in your Bible, um, we're going to go ahead and jump into that. And if you don't have it with you, we're going to have it up on the screen. And so uh, Romans 6, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Uh, so I'll go ahead and do that. What, th- what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, Baptism is um, is something that has existed from the beginning. Just, I mean, just think about one of the biggest passages um, or verses of all time, the the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to go and baptize, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. So Jesus tells his disciples what their mission is, and that. That's their mission statement, right? That's the mission statement of the church, uh, the Great Commission. And what's one of the main things in there? Baptizing them, right? Um, 
And so baptism has been there, part of the Christian life from the beginning. Uh, it's a ceremony of faith that began two millennia ago, um, since the beginning of the church, and has continued to this day. Um, and baptism is such a powerful image that it even seeps into culture. Um, just think about some of the most popular movies over the past um, few decades. Uh, think about uh, Shawshank Redemption when uh, Dufresne has to crawl through the waters and, uh, and come out on the other side uh, out of the prison to be finally freed, right? He comes through the waters exiting as a prisoner and coming out freed. Uh, think about The Matrix, right? Neo chooses the right pill. He says, I want to know rea- what re- reality is. I want to know the truth. And he takes the right pill. And what happens? He's reborn out of water into the real world, um, uh, into the, the true world, right? Uh, think about The Truman Show, right? He's, he has to face his fears and go through the water to finally get to reality. Or, or Forrest Gump, you know, Forrest even says about Lieutenant Dan after he, they have the bout with the storm and Lieutenant Dan dives into the water. He says, you know, Lieutenant Dan was made, right, made his peace with God that day. Um, and uh, even, even something as recent as uh, the new uh, Batman movie, there's a point where Batman has this moment where he has to decide, am I going to continue doing things the way I did before, or am I going to become a new kind of hero? And in that moment, he has to dive into water and comes back out again um, as deciding he's a new type of hero. He's going to do things in a different way. Baptism is a powerful image. Uh, it even seeps into our, our movies, um, and, and, it, and it speaks to us in, in, a, in a powerful way. Um, and this should tell us that baptism um, isn't just some religious tradition that we do just because it's always been done, or we do it just because Jesus said so, which is a good reason in and of itself, right? Jesus told us to, so we should. Uh, But that's not the only reason that it's powerful and that we do it. Um, So today we're going to discuss baptism in two main parts. So we're going to talk about what is baptism and why is baptism important to us. So before we get to why it's so important uh, for us as a church, uh, both locally and universally, um, we really need to figure out what does baptism mean? Um, Because We've seen, we, you know, I'm sure we've all seen people get baptized in some way or another. We've all, a lot of us have been baptized, um, and a lot of us have an understanding of what it is, but I really want to dive deep into what baptism really is so that we know when we're talking about baptism, before we get to why it's so important, we know what it actually is, what it means, what it does, um, all that sort of thing. So we're we're kind of going to have a mini systematic theology lesson here, so uh, bear with me. Uh, we're going to get to a, a, point, a main point at the end of this section, but first we're going to talk about a lot of scriptures, and so bear with me. Uh, as we go through all this, I'm going to put up on the screen lists of verses if you're taking notes. Uh, I'm not going to put all of them up on the screen, even though I'm reading a lot of them, um, but if you do want um, to write those down, they're there. And if you want my, uh, my sermon outline, because it is a lot of information, uh, just let me know afterwards, and uh, I'll make sure I can get, uh, get my outline to you in one way or another. Um, so let's jump into this. What is baptism? Um, first of all, um, what, what, do we, what category does baptism fit into? Uh, traditionally, it's been called a sacrament. 
And so um, the sacraments uh, for the Protestant uh, tradition um, are generally um, only baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, and so it, when you go to Roman Catholic tradition or other, uh, other older traditions like that, um, you start getting other things that are pulled in, like uh, marriage is seen as a sacrament, things like that. And so, um, but really over, the, over time, sacrament has started to have um, a lot of connotations that we kind of want to avoid. And so, um, especially coming from the Roman Catholic tradition, um, sacrament kind of means a means of grace or a means of applying grace. And so what that means is when, uh, when a Roman Catholic person will say, this is a sacrament, what they are saying is, when you physically do this thing, it is a way that God gives you grace. And if you don't physically do this thing, then you're not receiving the grace of God. Does that make sense? You have to do the thing to receive the grace of God. And so that's what we kind of want to avoid. And so over the years, um, a lot of Protestant traditions have held on to the word sacrament and still use it. And that's fine. Um, just because words have bad connotations when used in certain contexts, we don't just stop using them. But there is a good case to make for, okay, let's find a different word for what this is so that we can make sure that we avoid uh, this, these connotations. And so we, we hold that baptism and the Lord's Supper or ordinances. And basically all that means is Jesus ordained them for the church to do. They're ordinances. And so baptism is one of the two ordinances that we have uh, that we practice as a church. Um, in a few weeks, um, I believe, we're going to be uh, talking about the Lord's Supper, a commitment to the Lord's Supper. So we will hit the other ordinance. I think Matt, Matt's excited because I think he's doing that one. He's back there doing a little jig. Um, and so, uh, so, so baptism is an ordinance. What does it mean? So we're going to talk about we're going to talk about baptism in this part. What is it in three parts? So we're going to talk about what does baptism mean. We're going to talk about who gets baptized. And we're going to talk about what is the mode or method or how is baptism performed, basically. And really, those are listed in order of importance also. What it means is most important. Who gets baptized is next important. And the mode or um, how it's performed is the least important of the three. And so we, we need to talk about what it means before we get into who gets baptized and how it's done, right? And so uh, let's go. First, what we're going to do is we're going to go through three views of what baptism means. So we're going to start off with the view that uh, the Roman Catholic Church um, holds, um, which is that baptism is uh, a means of receiving regeneration. It is the means of grace by which we receive our salvation, basically. Regeneration simply means your heart has changed, right? That's what happens when uh, we come to saving faith is God gives us a new heart. That's what regeneration means. Um, and so the Roman Catholic tradition sees baptism as necessary for salvation because baptism causes our regeneration. And um, so what that basically means is when you are baptized, uh, Roman Catholics, obviously they will baptize adults that come to faith, um, but uh, children of Christian homes, infants, are baptized as infants in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you know, I think we all know that. And so what happens when an infant or anyone else is baptized in the Roman Catholic tradition is grace is 
uh, saving grace is conferred onto them. So, it, and it, this is important. It doesn't really matter if the person has saving faith in that moment. You know, an infant we know can't, but it, based on the theology, their theology, it doesn't really matter if the person has saving faith when they're baptized, nor does it really matter if the person performing the baptism has saving faith if they perform it in the right way. Um, and so that's an important point because it shows us that it's the act. They, they, they are saying this physical act of baptism is what gives you your saving faith. It's what regenerates you. And I'm going to go through a few key verses. So uh, Rebecca's going to put these uh, just in a list up on the screen if you want to write them down. Um, but I'm going to read through these verses. These are verses that generally um, uh, the Roman Catholic tradition will point to to support this view. Uh, so we have John 3, 5. It says, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's Jesus speaking to, to Nicodemus. Uh, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 6, uh, talking about husbands loving their wives, it says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Uh, and then uh, 1 Peter 3, 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of look at some of these and break down why, um, why we don't think that these verses mean that baptism actually gives you saving grace by performing the act of baptism. Um, so let's look at John 3, 5 first. When Jesus says, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus that um, you cannot enter the kingdom but through the washing of water and the Spirit. This corresponds with um, a passage in Ezekiel 26, uh, verses 25 through 27, where basically Ezekiel is pointing forward to the new covenant, and he says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your, all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, that's regeneration, and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And so what we see in this parallel between what Jesus told Nicodemus and this passage in Ezekiel um, is a spiritual washing. So what's being said is basically when Jesus said through the washing of water and by the Spirit, he's basically saying the same thing twice. Um, the washing of water doesn't mean you can't enter the kingdom unless you have been baptized. Um, he hadn't even ordained baptism at that point. Um, he was reaching back to this passage in Ezekiel and saying, unless you've been made clean spiritually through, the, through what Ezekiel was pointing to here, um, he, he was pointing toward the new covenant, uh, receiving a spiritual washing just as a spiritual new heart. It, you know, if you're going to say that the washing is something that's physical and the heart is something also physical based on the parallel in this passage. And so 
We can say similar things for Titus 3.5 when he points to the washing of regeneration. Same thing in Ephesians 5.26 where it talks about the washing of water. These are all just images. It's symbolic of being made clean from your sin, being made new. Um, What about 1 Peter 3.21? If you look back at 1 Peter 3.21, it says baptism now saves you, right? So that should be conclusive, right? Your baptism saves you. Well, let's look at what he says in uh, the little parenthetical there. He says that it requires a pledge of good conscience toward God. What does that mean? It means that there's an inward reality, an inward exercise of faith in God that, that it's not the baptism that saves you without that, right? You have to have the inward pledge of good conscience toward God, the inward exercise of faith toward God, unless if you want the baptism to mean anything, right? And so, um, so all in all, it's not very, these passages aren't very conclusive to say baptism saves you. In fact, most of them kind of point to the opposite. Most of them point to, no, it's your faith that, it's your faith that saves you. It's the washing spiritually that, that is important. It's the regeneration spiritually that's important. The baptism is just an outward act that reflects what's going on inside. And so um, there are also plenty of narrative examples of people coming to saving faith without baptism. Um, <clears throat> the most notable of these is probably the thief on the cross, right? Um, obviously, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, yet Jesus told him, today I will see you in paradise. And so even with all out all of that, all in all, you really need to view Scripture within the view of other Scripture. Um, you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? Um, you look at the whole of it, and the overwhelming evidence lies in the faith and the favor of salvation being through faith alone. When you read the New Testament, it's hard to come to any other conclusion over and over again. Um, you see faith alone, faith alone. Um, and so these passages that we just read must be seen through that lens. Um, you can't pick and choose when you're doing certain doctrines. When you're doing the doctrine of baptism, you can't ignore the things that say faith alone saves you just because these verses say what you want them to say. Um, and after all, in Romans 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Where's baptism, right? Um, it's an inward act that's important. It's the washing spiritually that's important. Um, and so uh, I think uh, we can move to the next one now, uh, which is um, it's, there, are, there are a good number of Protestant um, traditions, um, a lot of Reformed traditions, uh, the Anglican tradition, um, uh, the Methodist tradition that um, fit more into this mold. It's especially true of the Reformed tradition, um, so I'll focus on that. Um, but um, and that is the the uh, the view. Not that's not to say that all Reformed traditions um, have this view. Um, uh, you know, as a church, uh, a lot of our views are Reformed, but we do not have this view of baptism. Um, and so it's not to say that all Reformed 
traditions have this view, but it's largely a Reformed tradition that has this view, and that is the view that baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant. So basically, when you're baptized, it's a sign and a seal of you entering the covenant community of God. So basically, what this view is, to make it a little bit easier to understand, is they view baptism as the Christian parallel to circumcision. So when God gave Abraham, uh, when he made the covenant with Abraham, part of that covenant was, um, as we'll read in a second, um, the, the circumcising of the males in the household. Um, and so that included everyone, every male in the household was circumcised. And that was an outward sign that they were now in the covenant community of God. Now, they don't believe that you that that is like necessary. It's a reflect. They do believe it is symbolic and reflective of that reality, but they do believe that the that basically baptism is to replace circumcision for the Christian. Um, so it's it's basically your initiation into the covenant and a sign um, of your salvation. Um, now. For adults that are baptized, those benefits of salvation are absolute, just as we would say. Um, but for infants, it's they would say, because that these traditions do baptize infants, um, that it's conditional on their continuance in the faith and those vows that were made at their baptism. So they would say, you baptize children because you circumcised children in the Old Testament. This is the new... Uh, this is the new initiation into the covenant community. You baptize children, and, you know, that doesn't save them. They, it still depends on their continuance in the faith uh, once they are able to make that decision. <clears throat> there, here's some key verses. Um, uh, if Rebecca hasn't always, already put those up, she will now. Um, Genesis 17. Um, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but it's Genesis 17, 7, and then 10 through 11. Uh, it's God giving his covenant to Abraham. Um, he says, uh, this is my covenant for you, uh, for you and your offspring after you, um, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised, um, and, and so on. And so this is a, a passage, and then there's kind of a parallel passage Similar in Acts 2.39, when Peter's giving um, his message at Pentecost, at the end he says, For the promises for you and your, for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And so you can see there, it's kind of parallels. You know, God said to Abraham, for you and your offspring. Peter's saying, this is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and for as many as God will call, Right. Then you have this kind of pocket of, uh, of scriptures, which I was reading them and I realized these are all verses 13 through 18, all three of these. How strange. And they all cover the same, con- the same like content. They're all about the same thing, which is um, that the covenant um, God, that God made with Abraham is continued now in the church. Um, how cool is that? It's so random, but all of those it's random verses too, 13 through 18. It's not like 1 through 10 or something. Um, but all of these, ver- I'm not going to read these, but you can go look at them later. These, are, these all talk about how the covenant God made with Abraham is continued um, now uh, through the church. Um, and then probably the most conclusive passage for this I will read, and that's Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Um, and it says, 
You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the circumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. So, that's probably the most conclusive passage because it does put a strong correlation between the two, right? He says, um, he says, when you are also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done by he- hands uh, in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. So that's important. It's something that we're going to address in a minute. Um, but first, uh, I want to say uh, it is true that we are all now grafted into Abraham's tree, right? Romans 11 is conclusive on this. Paul talks about um, when you become, when you who are not descended, right, from, from Israel, when you are not a descendant of Israel, when you are not Jewish, you are now, if you come to saving faith in Christ, you are grafted into that tree, right? You are grafted into that tree that is the covenant promise of God to Abraham, um, that they will be his people, right? We are grafted into that tree. We are now continued in that covenant that God made with Abraham. That is true. Um, But Paul is also clear in Romans that simply being descended physically, um, biologically from Israel does not guarantee you are part of the promise. True circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. That is spiritual circumcision. That is regeneration, right? Uh, It says in Romans 2.29, earlier in Romans, He says, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. And so this means that the covenant passages in Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians apply in this way too. Um, It is about a new spiritual continuation of the covenant that was once for a physical people, right? And so some of those, a lot of those people came along in there. But Paul talks about them that don't exercise faith in Christ being cut off from the tree. And so you can see that that physical community of God is now replaced with a spiritual community of God. And so um, this is important. Um, it, It shows us again that the main concern is that of spiritual regeneration. And it seems that the New Testament says that circumcision as a sign of the covenant is not to be replaced by another outward act, that being baptism, but by an internal act. An internal circumcision seems to be what's emphasized whenever circumcision is talked about. It seems like Paul and others are saying that you were circumcised before, but now you're circumcised by your heart. And it doesn't seem like he's saying now you get a baptism as that outward sign. That just doesn't seem to be what, it, what is being said. Um, and so it's not, it's not really that circumcision has simply passed, uh, but that the whole framework on which circumcision was based has, been, has passed, has been replaced by a new framework. Um, and we can say the same thing for Acts 2.39 um, in that way. Um, and not to mention at the end of Acts 2.39, he said, as many as the Lord will call. So there's an emphasis there on God is calling these people. It's not just you're a part of this 
household, you're, you're descended from the right people. It's people that God is calling. Um, and so I think that's important too. Um, and finally, let's, let's look at Colossians 2, 11 and 12, because this does present the most powerful case for this view. Um, <clears throat> does this passage put circumcision of the heart in very close relation with baptism? Yes, right? As it should, because baptism is a sign uh, of that inward thing that's going on. Um, but let's look carefully. There's an emphasis on the fact that we were circumcised in Christ with a circumcision not done with hands. That seems like an odd thing to throw in there if you're wanting to say that something done with hands is to replace circumcision, right? With a circumcision not done with hands. Um, it seems like it just seems to me like an odd thing to throw in there if you're trying to say that now baptism, now you're baptized with hands, and that's the, how you enter the covenant community. Um, again, not that it saves you. They don't believe that it saves you. They believe that you have to have faith alongside it. Um, so I don't, get, I don't want you to be confused and think that that's what they think. But they do think that it is the sign of the covenant that replaces circumcision. And so um, Paul speaks here once more of a circumcision of the heart where our old self is cut off and we are now in Christ. And he adds, yes, he adds when you are baptized, but that's just a matter of fact. When pe- read Acts. When people came to saving faith, they got baptized. So when you were baptized is just basically saying when you came to saving faith, right? Because over and over again in Acts, they believed, and then they were baptized. They believed, and then they were baptized. So he's just pointing them back to a point in their life. When you were baptized, when you came to saving faith, that's when this happened. Um, and so um, if, you were, if you're trying to say that what this means is that it equates baptism with circumcision, it's saying that, oh, yeah, baptism has replaced circumcision, you're really kind of reading a more into the text that's there. Uh, you're kind of having to infer something that's not explicitly stated. And we, we, we want to try to avoid that as much as possible uh, when, we're, when we're, you know, saying what we believe based on Scripture. And overall, really, the ultimate problem with this view is uh, the major difference between the old covenant with Abraham and the new covenant in Christ. Let's be careful. <clears throat> the new covenant does not nullify or even replace the old covenant, what the new covenant does is it continues it and perfects it, right? Uh, let me give you a, a very obvious example. In the old covenant, animal sacrifices were required for right standing with God. Does the New Testament nullify or replace sacrifice? No, it doesn't. But we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus has continued that in sacrificing himself and perfected it, right? So let's be careful. The old covenant is not replaced or nullified by the new covenant. It, the new covenant continues the old covenant and perfects it, right? Um, everything is perfected in Christ. And so when we apply this to the sign of the covenant community, uh, we must ask, is this something from the old covenant that must continue 
in the new covenant? Is this physical outward sign of being part of the covenant community of God supposed to be continued in the New Testament? And I would say no. When, when we look at Genesis 17, um, for one, we see that it's not only um, those that, are, that have faith in God that are circumcised, it's children in the family that are circumcised. And not just children, but foreigners that are in their household. And not just them, but servants or slaves that they had bought. These people probably didn't have faith in their God, but they were still circumcised, and they were still considered a part of the covenant community, even though they knew they were probably not, they maybe hoped, but didn't, you know, knew, you know, there's maybe not a great chance that they will come to saving faith in our God. Um, And so while it's true that, uh, while true circumcision was still required in the Old Testament, it's not like, it's not like, God didn't care about true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament. He did. He talks about that. Um, You know, he even, some of the prophets say, you know, I don't even want your sacrifices. You know, I care about your heart, right? Um, When he chose David, he cared about the heart. He didn't care about the outward experiences. So it's not to say that God didn't care about the inward circumcision, but we do see that when you were circumcised in, in the Jewish tradition, you were seen as a part of the community of the covenant community of God. Uh, in other words, the covenant community in the Old Testament was determined by a physical means. Whether you were physically descended from Jewish parents and circumcised or physically belonged to, uh, you know, locationally belonged to a Jewish household, uh, you were given a physical sign of circumcision uh, and became a part of the physical community of God. In the New Testament, we don't really see anything like this. Instead, what we see is a spiritual body. And this spiritual body is not entered into by anything physical. Nothing physical, right? It's entered into voluntarily and by people being spiritually born again and having saving faith, right? Um, and so one entered the, what we see is one entered the covenant community before in the old, before, in the old covenant through physical birth or being in the Jewish nation. Um, But now in the new covenant, one enters the church, the kingdom of God, through spiritual rebirth. Um, There's a lot of parallels here. This This is a good way to think about this, of why baptism is not to replace a baptism as a new outward sign is not to replace an old outward sign. Think about all of these things. Manna, Manna was bread from heaven, physical bread from heaven that the people of Israel ate in the wilderness. And manna is replaced by what? Jesus, the true bread of life, a spiritual reality. Water that gushed out from the rock for the people in the wilderness that gave them a physical, that quenched their physical thirst is replaced by Jesus, who is the water of life, a spiritual reality that makes us not want spiritually anymore. Uh, It quenches our spiritual thirst. The temple or the tabernacle where God God existed physically, right? His presence was physically existent in the temple and in the tabernacle is replaced by a spiritual reality. Our body is indwelt by the Spirit as the church of God. 
sacrifices, we talked about that. Animal sacrifices are replaced by the perfect sacrifice in Jesus, but also, as Hebrews says, our spiritual sacrifices through Christ, right? Uh, the land, the, the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham is replaced by a heavenly home, right? That Jesus tells us will be ours, where he's preparing a place for us. Um, and as we talked about, the physical descendants of Abraham are replaced by spiritual descendants of Abraham. That's not to say that those who were physically descended from Abraham are not, cannot be included in that. Many of them are. But that, re, that framework has been replaced. The physical framework has been replaced by a spiritual framework. And so all of these physical res, representations, just skip a few verses down in Colossians 2 to 2.17, and it says, These were a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. So all of that to say, the baptism is not a replacement of circumcision because those physical outward signs, those physical outward expressions of the covenant community of God have been replaced with spiritual realities that are true of the true church of God, um, the people who are citizens of his kingdom, right? It's not a kingdom of this world. And so let's come to finally what we hold, which is generally called believer's baptism. This view sees baptism as an outward symbol or indication or token of the inward change in a believer, namely that their salvation and uh, regeneration in Christ is has occurred, has happened, is true. And so baptism then is a ceremony where one is able to publicly declare uh, the laying down of their old self and beginning their new life in Christ before uh, a body of believers um, who are able to celebrate this occasion, welcome them into the family of God. And so, yeah, there, there is a lot of similarities between these other views, right? We don't believe baptism actually physically saves you, but we do believe that baptism is a part of that experience of being saved, we don't believe that the outward act of baptism is, the, your, is what brings you into the covenant community of God, but we do believe that that's a part of it, right? It's symbolic of that. Um, and so that's what baptism is. We are not regenerated or saved by the act. The act is a testimony to the change that has already taken place in one's heart. We are not given citizenship or initiated into God's kingdom through this physical act as a replacement of circumcision, but it is a testimony to and symbol of this. Um, it just doesn't procure it in and of itself. There ha- there, you know, it's, it's reliant on there already being a spiritual reality there. Think of, think of this example. Uh, we've probably all been to a wedding at some point, and when... The, the bride and groom perform the wedding ring ceremony. What happens? They put the ring on their spouse, their new spouse's finger, and they say, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, is it the physical act of putting that ring on the finger that actually weds them together? No. It's symbolic. It's representative of um, a spiritual covenant reality that ha- is being 
joined together, then being joined together as one flesh, then being joined together in a new spiritual covenant together. It's a physical outward expression of that. Doesn't mean that that ring ceremony doesn't mean anything. Well, it doesn't make it happen. It's not what, what makes it work, but it, it's not, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a very beautiful and powerful ceremony that takes place in a wedding, right? Um, baptism, it, you know, it's a similar thing. It's a ceremony that we perform in the church that has, that has significance and meaning. It doesn't procure anything in and of itself, but it's an outward expression of a spiritual reality. Um, and I do want to say too, none of this means that baptism is not necessary. And Christ did in fact tell us to baptize. And we see it over and over again in Acts. Every time someone comes to saving faith, they are urged to be baptized. And sometimes when they come to saving faith, like the Ethiopian eunuch, he's like, can I get baptized right now? Like it's it's not to say that it's not necessary. It is. We do believe that if you come to saving faith in Christ, you should be baptized. Um, it's, an, it's an act of commitment and faith. Um, it's not required for true faith to exist. You know, we don't want to say that because Scripture doesn't support that. Um, but it is a natural accompaniment of faith. Um, just think about uh, James 2. You know, it says, James 2 tells us that Abraham... Uh, Abraham when he offered his son up to Isaac, his faith was made complete. Uh, what does that mean? It means that in doing that act, he proved that his faith was true, right? Um, it wasn't that when he did, his faith wasn't true until he performed that act. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, it actually, it actually two chapters earlier says his faith was counted to him as righteousness before he ever performed the act. And so, but the act proved his faith to be true to God. It was, a, it was an outward expression that his faith was true. Um, baptism is the same thing. That's why we say, yeah, it is necessary. You should be baptized because Christ told us to, and it's an outward expression of, uh, of our faith that is true in us. And so, um, this, you know, this is why, like I said, over and over again in Acts, we see people coming to faith and being baptized. And so that's what baptism means. So who gets baptized? We're going to spend a little less time here because a lot of the arguments we've already made um, are, are parallel here. Um, obviously, in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, you know, Roman Catholic tradition and those first two views believe that infants should be baptized. Um, there's a difference here between infant baptism and believer's baptism, which is the view that I just kind of talked about that we hold as a church. Um, you know, many uh, there's a lot of similarities and arguments um, for why uh, infants should be baptized from the Roman con- tradition to the Reformed and Protestant traditions that believe that. So um, for, the, for Roman Catholic, I'll just say, you know, specifically to them, if baptism truly is, does confer saving grace to you, then of course you wouldn't want to baptize infants, right? It just makes sense. You know, what if they pass before they are able to make a profession of faith? Um, You know, then yeah, you would want to baptize them because that gives them saving faith. Um, So it just, it just kind of logically logically makes sense. If you're going to say that baptism actually uh, gives you saving grace, then yeah, you would want to baptize infants. Um, 
Uh, but moving on to the Reformed and Protestant views of infant baptism, which, by the way, you, you would usually call it pedo-baptism, um, pedo just meaning child baptism. Child baptism. Um, but uh, we've talked about the argument of already of circumcision being replaced by baptism and why we don't think that that's um, strongly scripturally um, supported. Um, that's a big part of why they believe infants should be baptized, and we've already given a rebuttal to that. Um, but I want to talk about uh, uh, another big part of it, which is um, a whole household's being baptized. So there's, um, there is a list of scriptures that uh, she, she can put up on the screen um, of instances where um, it seems like the scripture is saying that a whole household was baptized. Um, these are mostly in Acts, but then Paul also talks about in 1 Corinthians 1.16, um, he says, uh, you know, when I, when I baptize the household of so-and-so. Um, so what's going on in all these passages? Um, well, basically, what, this, what uh, the pedo-baptism view or infant baptism view would say is, well, this is just further evidence that uh, these people uh, in this family were saved, and they went ahead and baptized everyone in the family, including the, the infants and children that were there. And so that's kind of how they take these passages to support infant baptism. Um, first of all, I want to say none of these passages none of these passages are completely decisive for one view or another. Um, they're not really decisive for infant baptism. They're not really decisive for non-infant baptism. They're just there. And either way, you're having to read into the text to say they support your view, bar none. You're having to infer something that's not explicitly stated. Um, so that's first off. At best, from these passages, people that hold to infant baptism would have to say that there may have been infants baptized in these households. That's, as, that's the best they can do. Um, and the best, honestly, the best we can do is say there may not have been, it's just, right? It, we just don't know exactly what was being said. It, it just says they believed and the household was baptized, right? And so um, there, it's just not conclusive. It's not decisive for one view or another. Um, second, we, we have to note also that in all of these passages but one, uh, the baptism of the household is mentioned alongside the saving faith um, of the household, the reception of the gospel by the household. And that's an important point, I think, um, for us to, to see. Um, there's only one that doesn't mention uh, the household believing alongside the baptism. Um, and it's kind of like a verse in passing where um, it's talking about Lydia and it says, after Lydia and her household were baptized, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it doesn't, again, it's, it's not really decisive, and it's just kind of, it's not even like a story of Lydia's family coming to faith like all the other ones are. It's just kind of mentions it in passing. Even in the 1 Corinthians passage, if you go later on in 1 Corinthians, I can't remember the reference, but um, he talks about that guy's family again, and he says, when they came to believe, um, all of these passages place saving faith, a reception of the gospel, and a belief in the gospel alongside baptism. So, you know, I think that's a strong case to say, so baptism is for when you come to saving faith. Um, further, even beyond just these, these passages, um, we have to ask, 
if infants should be baptized, then the question is, what does baptism do, right? What does it do? Uh, these Protestant traditions, obviously, we've talked about, they don't want to say that it causes regeneration, like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and they also doesn't, they don't want to say that it symbolizes regeneration that has already happened in an infant, because that's not the case either, right? They're not, they don't want to say, well, well, they've already been regenerized just by being born into a Christian family, and so this is symbolic of the spiritual reality for the infant. They don't want to say that either. Um, so really what we must conclude is that when, when an infant is baptized in these Protestant traditions, they're saying they're entering the covenant community through this act, and it symbolizes a possible or probable regeneration or salvation in the future of the infant. And the problem is the New Testament just doesn't talk about baptism in that way. It just doesn't. Uh, when we read the New Testament, baptism is always spoken of as a sign um, that's uh, an act, a symbolic act that's performed alongside being born again, right? Um, and so it, just the logical steps you have, that you have to make, um, just it doesn't seem like bab infants are some, we should be baptizing infants based on what scripture says, what these passages say, and just the logic of what it means. We, we don't want to say that, well, when they're baptized, it means that they might possibly or probably stay in the covenant in the future. It's just, that's just an odd thing to, to, to do or say. Um, we, what we do here is we do child dedications and we say, um, you know, we tell it's, and it's kind of more of a parent dedication, right? I'm dedicating myself to, uh, to investing in this child and, and teaching them the faith and the gospel um, so that, uh, and as we do that, we're coming together as a covenant community of the church um, and praying for you as parents and praying for this child's faith. Um, we do that, um, but that's not an act that's supposed to say, well, like, this is an outward act that we're performing that we're, like, you know, it's just an odd thing to, to, to say about baptism when Scripture doesn't really support it. And so, believer's baptism is uh, the view that we hold. And baptism, like I said, in the New Testament is always spoken of as a sign of being born again, of being cleansed from sin, of beginning your new life in Christ. Um, it just simply doesn't talk about baptism in any other way. That's how it talks about it. Um, and nor are there clear cases of one being baptized before exercising faith, um, as we just talked about. Um, and that's why we believe that baptism is administered on those, to those who give a believable profession of faith. You know, we're not standing in judgment and saying your faith isn't real or your faith is, uh, you know, this or that. Um, but if someone is able to give a believable profession of faith, um, you know, saying I have come to saving faith in God and here's, here's what I believe, then yeah, that's when you get baptized. Um, and so, uh, you know, an infant simply isn't able to do that. Um, now, it's a whole long bunny trail of what happens if an infant passes away. And, you know, that's a very, that's a very real question, and it's a very sensitive question. Um, and, uh, you know, to put it short, to put it short, you know, I don't, we don't, or 
I don't want to speak for everyone in our church, but I don't believe that when an infant passes that, I believe that when an infant passes, they are with God um, because they haven't had the opportunity to profess um, that faith. Um, There's reasons for that. Um, There's very, 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 very minimum scriptural support for that. And so it's not like a strong case. Either way for that, you have to kind of think about it. But other Protestant traditions that do baptize infants, they don't, they're not saying that, obviously, that that saves them either. So it's really only the Roman Catholic tradition that, that does that. Um, but that's a whole long bunny trail that we don't have time for. We've already spent a lot of time talking about what baptism is. And so um, let's uh, move on. Oh, one last thing here. Um, note that it's not called adult baptism versus infant baptism. It's believer's baptism because kids can come to saving faith in Christ, right? Um, uh, I was saved out of VBS when I was five years old, um, personally. Uh, you know, I was very young. Um, and so it's not, it's not adult bab- baptism and infant baptism. It's believer's baptism, um, kids can come to saving faith at a very young age, um, and Jesus welcomed that. Uh, and so, lastly, what is the the mode of baptism? That's the uh, the theological way to talk about it. The mode of baptism. It just means how do you perform it? Like, what is the physical act like? Um, there are three uh, ways that it's done: a fusion, which is pouring; aspersion, which is the sprinkling; and then immersion, which is obviously dunking and coming back out. Put simply, um, immersion seems to be the preferred method of baptism, but the other methods are not wrong uh, to perform when necessary. Um, there are three reasons that, um, that I think there are for why immersion is, is preferred when it's possible. Uh, one, because the, uh, the Greek word baptizo uh, typically, not always, but typically means to plunge in and out of water. Um, second, um, there are cases where it seems clear that this is what was being performed uh, in the New Testament. Um, take, for instance, Jesus' own baptism. It says when he came up out of the water, meaning he was in the water. Um, or, um, <clears throat> or Peter and the Ethiopian eunuch, it says they went down into the water and they came back out again. Why would they need to go down into it if he wasn't being dunked? They could just do it right there at the shore. Um, <clears throat> and so... That's the second reason. The third um, is that it's most representative of what we read at the beginning that baptism is symbolizing, right? Our death with Christ uh, and our resurrection with Christ, right? Our being laying down our sin and our old life and being risen up again with Christ in his new life. Um, it's just, it seems to be the most representative of what it's symbolizing, the dunking in and coming back out again. So those are reasons why I would say when immersion is possible, that should be how we perform baptism. Um, And, you know, surely there were cases in Scripture um, where there just wasn't enough water for immersion. Um, You know, that's very likely. I mean, it's not explicitly stated, but it's very likely that that was the case, given where, where they lived, all the various places that the gospel was being preached there wasn't a big a big amount of water at all these places. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't really say that other forms of baptism are not valid, um, and there's not really scriptural support for that. Um, but um, immersion is what we would prefer 
if it's possible, right? And so that brings us finally to our first point, which is just um, a definition of baptism. I tried to fit as much into this definition as I could of stuff we've talked about. Uh, But yeah, baptism is a symbolic ceremony in the life of a believer that has professed faith as a testimony before a body of believers to represent the washing away of sins and their new life in Christ as a part of his kingdom, the church. Yeah, yeah. Amen, right? It's amazing. Um, So whatever mode of baptism you do, whatever view of baptism you have, um, we know that baptism is of great importance. And we've talked about that. We've talked about, you know, Jesus told us to baptize. It's of great significance important. So why is baptism important to us? In ancient Rome, um, a Roman soldier would perform what ancient Roman historian Tacitus called the sacramentum. The sacramentum was basically a pledge uh, that a Roman soldier would give to the emperor saying, you know, I am committed to you. I am pledging my life to you as your soldier. Um, And that was called the sacramentum. And that's, I didn't actually look up if that's where the word sacrament comes from, um, but I would I would guess probably that's where the word sacrament comes from. <laughs> I didn't actually look it up. I just found this cool story of Tacitus and Tertullian, which Tertullian was an early church father who was born in the mid-2nd century, so very early on, um, and he was one of the first apologists um, for the Christian church, defending the Christian church, and Tertullian um, uh, contrasted the Roman sacramentum with baptism, which he dubbed the Christian sacramentum. Um, and so when a, when a believer in ancient Rome was baptized into Christ, Tertullian was basically saying, uh, becoming a part of the church, it was an act of sedition against Rome. It was an act of rebellion against the Roman Empire. Uh, That's pretty cool, right? Um, It was proclaiming that your allegiance was no longer to Rome, but to Christ. The act of that, that Christian sacramentum, right? It It was an act showing your pledge of allegiance to a new kingdom, right? To God's kingdom, to Christ. Um, I think that's pretty cool. And what I want to point out here is that in many places in the world today, now, Baptism, like in ancient Rome, is still a very strong act of sedition and rebellion. There are places in the world where if you get baptized, your life is at risk. If you get baptized into the Christian faith, your life is at risk. Because it is. It's an act of sedition. It's saying, that is not my God any longer. The one true God is my God. The world is not my God anymore. God is my one true God. I am a follower of Jesus now. And so I want to point out, we are privileged that that is not the case for us. And we should not take for granted the great importance of baptism. So that brings us to our second point, and that is, by the way, blue highlight is not easy to read in low light. So just, a, just an FYI, do not highlight in blue if you're going to be reading in low light. Um, here we go. <laughs> Baptism has spiritual significance for the individual and the church. So while baptism has no power in and of itself, it is not a mere symbol. And what I mean by that is it's not just like 
a picture of something, it does have great spiritual significance in the life of the believer and of the church. This is, and I say this because I don't want us to react so strongly against the Roman Catholic view that baptism actually saves you, that we say there is no benefit, no spiritual benefit to baptism whatsoever. There is. Uh, Let's look again at Colossians 2.12, where it says, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. There's no magical property in baptism, no. But this verse certainly implies that when one has true faith accompanying their baptism, God is working in the life of that believer. What is he doing? Why does it have that great spiritual significance? It's when you are baptized into the faith. How many, how many of us have been in a church when people have been baptized or been baptized ourselves? You know, it's if you, you don't have to raise your hand, but I don't mind if you raise your hand. I like seeing it. <laughs> yeah, me. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Um, but, uh, but, you know, how many of us have been a part of that, both personally and as a part of a church? It's powerful. It's, people cry. I'm crying thinking about it right now. I'm tearing up. And that's because when a person is baptized, God is working in the life of that believer, and he's working in the life of the church, and he's increasing the faith you know, his gospel is being spread. There's a new person in it, in the, in the kingdom of God. There's a new person that has eternal life in Christ. And it reinforces that for that person, that the power of sin in their life is dead. It's buried under the water and they've come out of the water again. And they have a new life, a new resurrection life in Christ. It's powerful. It's significant. And it's, It's just it's so significant and important for a believer to be baptized for that reason. And not only that, but the body of believers that are there to witness it are are encouraged and inspired in those same ways, right? You can think back to when you were baptized. Um, Think about uh, singing songs in church together, right? When we when Matt was leading us in worship earlier, he was singing up here. We were all singing out these words and these melodies together. Um, And those words and those melodies in and of themselves didn't mean anything, but God was working in them to increase our faith and the truths that we were singing about. And in praising him, he's working uh, in that physical expression of what's going on on the inside. He works in those things. He works and he works in our work relationships. He works in our relationships with, uh, he works in the way we run our business, right? He works in those physical expressions of an inward reality. And so we don't want to say that this is a mere symbol, uh, that there's no spiritual significance to it. God does work in it. It's just that that physical act in and of itself doesn't do anything of spiritual significance of itself, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the church as a whole is encouraged in this way whenever someone is baptized. And I want to point out here that baptism symbolizes not just those things, but it, it symbolizes also a new exodus for us. Think about the people of Israel. They're, they leave Egypt. God has freed them from Egypt they go through the waters of the Red Sea and they emerge through those waters on the other side where they were once slaves on one side. They are now free and God's people once more on the other side. 
not only does God work in our hearts when faith accompanies baptism, we also experience a new exodus along with the church of God in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and ate and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Just as God's people went through the waters of the Red Sea, entering as slaves and exiting as free people, when we enter the waters of baptism, slaves to sin into the world, we come back out of the water free from sin and part of God's kingdom, the church. Go a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 12, and it says in 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Baptism is our new exodus where we go into the waters like so many other Christians before us for two millennia have done. We experience that same ceremony that they went through, going through the waters of baptism, coming out again, and we get to join in that communal experience of being a part of God's church, being a part of the bride of Christ. It's beautiful. God's people went through the waters way back then when he set them free from Egypt, and so many Christians have gone before us through the waters of baptism, symbolizing their new life in Christ. So we get to also experience that symbol. And the Christian experience is never simply an individual experience, is it? It's always part of a body of believers. We bear one another's burdens. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. And we celebrate when a new believer is baptized in our midst. Baptism is just the beginning of this as we all rejoice like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, it says he rejoiced with his entire household because he believed. And when someone is baptized in our church, we rejoiced all together because they have believed. And so here's an application. It's simple. If you haven't been, first of all, if you haven't never experienced saving faith, I encourage you to come talk to me. Come talk to Matt. Um, uh, Jason is standing there in the back. Uh, you can talk to him. Um, come talk to one of us uh, about that. Lagan, uh, Lagan is here. You can talk to him if you never experienced that. But the application I want for today is if you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to be baptized. Um, it's if you've never experienced going through the waters of baptism and the beauty of this, the, that symbol, um, it's an amazing thing. And I would encourage you to do that. But in conclusion, I, I want to ask, why is baptism such a powerful symbol? Recall what Romans 6 says. It says that we were baptized into Jesus and into his death and raised with him again. In Matthew 3, we see Jesus coming uh, to Galilee, to John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been baptizing people. And it says that, he came to be baptized by, by him in Matthew three thirteen through 17. But John Ray tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. He consented. You know, John resisted Jesus's baptism. Why? Because Mark 1.4 tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is coming to John. Jesus is without sin. So John's like, whoa, 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 whoa. My baptism is a forgiveness of, about the forgiveness of sin, about repentance. You need to be baptizing me, not the other way around. And notice what Jesus says. He says, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? The answer starts in John 1.29 in John's account of Jesus' baptism, where it says that uh, before Jesus came to be baptized, John saw him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. While Jesus was sinless, he came to John for baptism and identified with all the sin of the world from the very beginning of his ministry. That's how Jesus' ministry started with was his baptism. And from the very start, he was saying, I'm identifying with your sin. Not only would Jesus be humble to the point of associating himself with our sin, but to the point of the cross where he would literally take on the sin of the world. And in dying for our sin, will fulfill all righteousness for us, allowing us to take on his righteousness and be right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which brings us to our last point. Baptism is powerful because in Jesus, our sins are dead and we are made free. We have a new life to live in Christ. So don't become stuck in the wilderness like the people of Israel who went through the seas, entering into, fe- into freedom and grumbled and complained. But take hold of the new Christ, of the new life that has been given to you in Christ. And make the most of it. Take hold of it. It's promised to you. You've been given a new life. Your heart is new. You are indwelled by the Spirit to lead you and guide you and transform you. Let that be a reality in your life. And one way we can do that is to remember our baptism. Our last application. Remember what your baptism means. Because of your baptism, just as when Jesus came out of the waters of his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him. And the Father said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And when we come out of the waters of our baptism, that's accompanied by saving faith in Jesus. The same happens for us. We're filled with the Spirit of God. And the Father says to us, you are my son now. You are my daughter now. And because you are in Christ, I am pleased with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work of Christ this morning. 
who from the very beginning of his ministry humbled himself and identified with us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, we thank you so much for the beauty of your grace and mercy for us. And we pray that this morning, God, that you would use this message, God, to transform our hearts so that we would take this message to other people, God, that we would go, therefore, and make disciples and baptize them in your name. And God, we just thank you so much for who you are this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, his wonderful name, amen.